Welcome to Midweek Liberty, a program where we hope to offer your mind critical thinking. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor, and with me here in Cord Purgatory is... Anthony Allegria. Today we're going to be talking about Persian and Babylonian history, art and culture, and then the hijacking of religion. So let's begin. History is important, and it's rare that people learn history these days. It's not very politically correct. History a lot of times goes against the secular orthodoxy of our modern world. But it does give us great wisdom and insight when we study history. Because one of the things that we learn is we're always one generation away from tyranny, and at other times we can be just one generation away from prosperity. At the congregation where I pastor, we've been studying the book of Haggai. And the history behind it is very important, and especially if we're going to understand the book of Haggai, we really need to know some of the Babylonian and Persian history that lead up to the book. The book of Haggai is fascinating and unique, even when compared to other Old Testament prophets. It's one of the twelve minor prophets tucked away in the end of the Old Testament. And contained within its two chapters are the dates of the prophet's prophecy, an actual account of the people responding, and the real efforts, the active efforts of rebuilding the temple. Furthermore, the prophet's message is distinct in the fact that it's not so much a call to turn away from sin as it is an encouraging call to action, and the people respond to it. And again, if we're really going to understand the book of Haggai, we need to have a bit of context leading up to it. Particularly, we need to know about the Persian emperor Cyrus. Cyrus was a man with a lot of names. He was even known as the king of kings. And while we're not going to go into all the ins and outs of, of Cyrus and the details of his conquest, we are going to emphasize the date of 539 B.C. And this is when he comes to conquer Babylon. This is very important because in 539 B.C., the Jews were captives in Babylon. And that's a big problem for the people of God. So before we, we go any further with Cyrus, let's take the timeline back just a little bit. And we've actually got a graphic here to pull up. And those of you listening to the podcast, it's, it's all right if you can't see the graphic. But I want us to just take a few steps back to Nebuchadnezzar. There's a good chance in somewhere in your life you've heard the stories from the book of Daniel, and you've probably heard of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Babylonian king who, after taking control of Jerusalem, he carries off the Jews to Babylon as captives. King Nebuchadnezzar is a very interesting figure. Historically speaking, his reign, it had its high and low points, but life under Nebuchadnezzar was certainly not one that would rank high on the scale of, of freedom as far as the Israelites were concerned. We can look at his reign, and, and beginning in the year 605, we can see him conquering Jerusalem, and then really from the year 600 to 580, of course, numbers count backwards when we're in the, the B.C. era, there was a while when he was taking people off to captivity, and again, this is happening 600 to 580, people being carried off to be captives in Babylon. And while life may not have been great under Nebuchadnezzar, his rule eventually does come to an end. And we see the next important figure we're going to talk about being Nabonidus. And while there were a few other figures in between Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus, I really want us to take a few moments now and discuss Nabonidus. And there's a few reasons for this. While he was not quite the conqueror that Nebuchadnezzar was, and he didn't belong to a, a particularly powerful dynasty, he did do a lot of work restoring and preserving information. He had quite a bit of respect for the traditions and the, the religions and the things around him. He was one who unmistakably was very interested in things that, that come before him. A lot of people were call Nabonidus the first archaeologist, though personally I don't know that I would go that far. We see other people preserving history aside from him, but he he's actually doing quite a bit to do this. One of the interesting things that Nabonidus leaves us were these cylinders, and on a particular Nabonidus cylinder, there is the, the verification of Belshazzar. Again, going back to the book of Daniel, there's the whole scene in the book of Daniel with the writing on the wall. Nabonidus is the one 
who records on the cylinder the existence of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is listed as the king in that story of the writing on the wall, but Nabonidus is the one who's actually king in that time. And there is a relationship between Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Nabonidus is the father of Belshazzar. Nabonidus is actually the king there. So what we see happening is there's this tyrant of, of a bit, Nebuchadnezzar, and then you get Nabonidus, who's much tamer than Nebuchadnezzar. He's very interested in tradition. But as things go, he doesn't stay in power forever, and there is a, a time of falling after that. And now we get back to Cyrus. Now, of course, the book of Haggai begins with Darius being mentioned there, but we really need to talk about Cyrus. Cyrus, though his reign begins long before 539, for all practical purposes, we're going to look at the time when he comes to overthrow Babylon, which happens in 539. He was already reigning over several territories, but for the Jews, the story really begins in 539 when he comes because he releases them. When Cyrus overthrows Babylon, the Jews are released. Cyrus is very respectful of the religions of the the people that he rules over, and he's very concerned with their traditions and, and allowing them to return home and practice as they see fit. Of course, returning home was not just a matter of geographical change and hope, but it really is an act of religious freedom. So one of the things why we must talk about Cyrus is Cyrus grants them a whole new era of religious freedom, and that's so important to understanding the book of Haggai. And I know we haven't even got to talking about Haggai yet, but we really need to, to talk about Cyrus. Cyrus, obviously, he is the Persian emperor. And while he's not quite like Nebuchadnezzar or like the Romans who would come later, I want us to talk about Rome for a minute because I think it can help us understand something about Cyrus. The Romans had a policy known as Pax Deorum. You may or may not have heard of this before, but essentially the Romans believed that when they conquered people, the people they conquered, they should worship their gods. And when I say their gods, I don't mean the Roman gods. I mean the gods and the religions relative to what other people were conquered. The Romans believed that all gods, even those of conquered people, should be worshipped, and this was to maintain peace in the Roman Empire. The Romans thoroughly believed that people should not be atheists. No matter where you are, you should be worshipping something. All the gods out there in the cosmos, they needed to be worshipped. Cyrus, who was a Persian emperor, and again, much earlier than, than Rome, and certainly doesn't have this Pax Deorum policy, we can learn something from the Pax Deorum policy because it, it's a good model for understanding Cyrus. He wasn't somebody who was the, the tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't somebody who was, again, like some of the Romans were, but he did respect tradition, and he did want people to go home, and he did want them to live moral and healthy lives, and he releases the Jews, and he has them go out, and they're free to worship as they see fit. They have a great amount of liberty. Sure, they're not the totally independent nation. Everything's not perfect, but they have a great amount of liberty given to them under Cyrus. And really, we see an era... You may call it prosperity. There will be some people who may take issue with that. But you see a new prosperous era come under Cyrus. And this really is important to understanding the book of Haggai. So as the people were released, and Cyrus's rule comes to an end in 530, and there's several people after him before you get to Darius. Darius begins in 522, and the book of Haggai takes place in 520. But the whole stage for the book of Haggai is set by the liberties which is given to the people under Cyrus. So, you may ask, we've learned this short amount of history, we've talked about it, why is this so important? Well, the reason why it's important, the reason why the dates are important, is because we must learn that we are always one generation away from tyranny, or maybe one generation away from prosperity. Oftentimes, people in our modern world, they want to trace our current situations to events of the past. But in reality, each generation has our own choices to make. Haggai was old enough to remember the captivity, and he was also old enough to remember 
Nebuchadnezzar to Cyrus. He, he remembered both of those things. A lot of times people may not live in a lifetime where they can see such radically different worlds. But Haggai was old enough for this. Although the Jews were not an independent nation with total freedom, they did have a new era of prosperity, and that's important in the book of Haggai. The people could carry on their life, and they had choices. They could either not rebuild the temple, they could carry on life, sort of being happy with the thing things were, or they could rebuild the temple. They could do something productive, which is what Haggai the prophet comes and calls them to do. They could live their lives as lives of woe, pointing all their issues to Nebuchadnezzar, saying they can't do anything, they can't build the temple, or they could embrace the freedoms they had for good. History is important. The Jews leading up to the book of Haggai, a lot of them were old enough to remember being captives, being servants, being people who were not free, in the bondage of, of exile. Some of them seen this in their lifetime, but then they had a new liberty given to them. The book of Haggai gives us an account of what people can do with that liberty. They can sit and say, woe is me, the past is terrible, therefore my life is terrible, or we can go out and we can be productive, we can build. Even when we don't have pure freedom. Again, the Jews were not a, a pure, independent nation, but they still had freedom. They had some freedom. may not have been the best, but they had something. And what they do? They rebuilt the temple. And the era of Second Temple Judaism is so important to history, and we'll get to that another day. But there's one thing we can take away from this. We can wallow in bad things of the past, or we can use the resources we have now to build something fantastic. We're always one generation away from tyranny or one generation away from prosperity. We have to make the choice ourselves. So we'll be back in a moment to talk about art and culture, and hang around. So this segment will be how art can affect culture. So, it's obvious whenever one does look at culture, how influential the arts are. This was once limited to literature, songs, and architecture for centuries. But in today's culture, especially in the U.S., movies and television have become equally, if not more, influential. We want to break down a few reasons why this is not always the best way to determine your opinions, even though various arts are often the most influential factor for opinions on the societal level. One of the reasons art is so influential is because of its strong emotional and at times ethical appeal. Generalizations and opinions shouldn't be formed, from, formed about things based on how someone feels, but based on how these things affect other things in reality, on how those things function on large and small scales, and on how this information was observed. Anecdotal evidence is one form of observation, but it's not regarded by scholars as conclusive. In other words, True stories, specific individual events, are normally not reliable enough to form general rules. Most art is at best anecdotal evidence, and that's if it's actually and fully based on truth. So if the given art actually has a basis in reality, it's still not regarded highly on the journey to make generalizations. But it can be less reliable than anecdotal, but it can be even less reliable than anecdotal evidence because stories, songs, and movies are mostly fabricated and are not based on actual events. So not only does it often portray something that is too specific to make a general rule, some art may not have any bearing on reality in the first place. If someone presented fabricated evidence to any discussion, it'd be thrown out immediately. 
We really should do the same with art if its basis is not reality, even if it is entertaining or appealing. Art is often a portrayal of some message from a single perspective, rather than a contextualized multivalent perspective. This can also make an unreliable source to form opinions on. Art is often corrupted this way and is presented with a certain agenda in mind to sway others to that perspective. Now, obviously, communication for the sake of changing someone's mind is not inherently wrong, as long as it's done in good faith. And I mean, you know, that's what that's exactly the exchange that's taking place while I'm speaking now. However, agenda should be kept in mind, as it's one thing for people to openly try and change your mind. It's another thing for that approach to be underhanded and unseen. Art should be enjoyed with caution in that way, as much as much of it has an agenda without disclosure. Again, this is not inherently bad, but it's a reason to have caution. And just as another disclaimer, I don't hate art. You know, no one here hates art. We don't hate art or generalizations. Both can be useful and enjoyed, but they need to have they need to carry an appropriate weight. Art can be dangerously and unjustly influential and be closely associated with sophistry which we've spoken a lot on that before. So in a nutshell, art has taken many forms, and almost all the time, art should be enjoyed with caution, and not used to make generalizations, because it's the most powerful tool is emotion. It's often fabricated, and if it's not fabricated, it's at best anecdotal evidence, and it often has an agenda without saying. Now, uh, Dylan, do you, have any kind of, do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, there's a few things I'd like to add to that. We're in a day and age where people have a hard time using practical discernment. They can't tell one thing or another. We're really bad at, at judgment in our modern day and age. And when I say judgment, I'm not meaning the sort of crisis judgment where everything is condemnation rooted in the, the, the Greek for, for kriso, but instead in the Greek word of krino, the idea of thinking about things, just critical thinking, being able to discern between A and B. We live in this day and age where people, they can claim that anything is art, but the reality is, is that's nominalism. Just because you claim it is something doesn't mean that it is that thing. Just because you call it art doesn't mean it does. So how do we sort between the two? Things that are actually art and things that aren't. Personally, I've kind of got this weird new thing where I, I refer to art in sort of the category of fiction and nonfiction. And that goes beyond just literature and, and movies and stories. I'm to the point where I kind of call music. There's nonfiction music and then there's fiction music. If it's rooted in some of the classical architectures of music, personally, I've got to where I really like synthesis music, using little synthesizers. Um, when things are built off of the, the true architecture and the harmonies that are, are just laid to be true, it's, it's nonfiction. And then you get some more modern stuff, which is sort of repetitive and, well, it's, it's kind of plastic and cheap. And then you even get some weird stuff out there, like the, the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, that kind of fit into the category of fiction. It's not connected to truth. But the one thing we need to learn from this is, is go back to the classics and look at what the history of art is. Because as we learn the history of art, your whole mind seems to open up. The idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, well, that's not actually how people have thought about art throughout history. A lot of times people said there is an objective standard of art. Just because you call it art doesn't mean it's art. One of the things that I learned so much from in life, one of the most influential things I've ever read is a, the text Ion by Plato. You can get it for free. It's, it's a public domain book. You know, on Amazon, Kindle, and download Plato's Ion for free. Plato's Ion is this discussion between an artist and a friend of the artist who are trying to sort out really what the role of the artist is. 
One of the things that we can learn from studying the Greek philosophers is that beauty may have a very simple definition. Beauty could actually be the proximity to truth. And now that's sort of my personal commentary on it. I'm not trying to change people's minds through sophistry or changing of definitions. But I think one of the best ways to understand beauty is the proximity to truth. If you look at a person and say, that person's beautiful, there's a truth out there that they're close to. If it's physical beauty, they may be close to the abstract human form. If their character is beautiful, well, that's because they're close to certain moral truths that are in the world. Beauty is very much the proximity to truth. And even as we listen to music, something like Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is quite distasteful to listen to, you know, it's not very close to those musical structures which have been tried and true throughout time. But yet if we listen to something like Maurice Ravel's String Quartet in F Major, the, the, mu- the music, the rhythms, the, the harmony is absolutely gorgeous, and it's very close to the truth of, well, just the, the tonal structures. So beauty is very much the proximity to truth, and I think that's an important thing for us to, to do. So the one takeaway I'd ask you to have is this. Some art, just call it fiction. Maybe you're looking at a painting that's something that's completely indiscernible what it is. Be like, ah, that's fictional art. It's not in the nonfiction category, and move along with your life. Yeah, I actually think that's a really cool way to look at it because, like, you know, there's a lot of art that could be a lot more enjoyable, especially just, like, its mere existence. Yeah. If we would just regard it as what it is for fiction. Yep. For fictional purpose, you know, there's a lot of art out there that, I mean, it is it is entirely fictional. It has no real basis on reality, and yet people take so much more ethical standard from it yeah. than they really should just because well, of the— Even like, as we look at things that are aesthetic-oriented, visually aesthetic— the, the great sculptors back, if we look at people, even if you look at somebody like da Vinci, you look at any of the classics, you know, a lot of times they didn't learn from saying, I'm going to do something radical. I, I have resent for society. I'm just going to do something ugly and nasty. A lot of times you see things like, I'm going to go to the morgue. I'm going to chop up dead people so that I can learn the bone structure and muscles within people. That way, when I sculpt something, it'll be really close to the abstract human form. Does anybody look like these statues? No. Of course they knew that, but the idea wasn't that it would be something that would be oppressive to look at these perfect people, but it was something to admire because it was the abstract human form. You could look at it and you could say, this is something which transcends us all. We all can look to the transcendent good, and that is something of admiration. So, again, look at art, say, ah, that's fiction art. Mm, this may be nonfiction art. Some of that, that stuff out there that's just utter garbage, put it in the fiction category and move along with your life. And on that, we'll be back in a moment to talk about the hijacking of religion. Alrighty, well, welcome back to Midweek Liberty. Again, I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. Anthony Allegria is here with me. And we're going to wrap up our program today with the conversation on the hijacking of religion. Our culture is not very healthy these days, and you see symptoms of it everywhere. Granted, people overall, whether or not they have a, a moral structure or not, they realize our, our culture is unhealthy. I'll, I'll give that to people. People recognize that the culture is unhealthy, but what they, they do about it is very, is very, it's a variable. It varies a lot between groups. So let's talk about this for a bit, because it rarely seems that whether you look to one side of our culture or another, you rarely see the, the public eye focusing on Personal responsibility is the key to solving our problems. You see a lot of people talking about it, but those aren't the people that our culture really wants to embrace. Our culture wants to fight against this idea of personal responsibility. 
Recently, there was a school shooting in Florida, and this is an example of our, our culture being sick. There are a lot of red flags leading up to this, but he was not stopped. Big government solutions are not going to stop evil. You can't create policies that are just going to, to stop evil. The empirical evidence does not support this. If we look honestly at the hard evidence regarding violent crime, you'll see that attacking the Second Amendment doesn't really address the problem because, again, firearms are just a medium that can be used for, for evil. But they're not something that necessarily has a moral value in and of themselves. They're a medium. The primary expression of evil can be carried out a lot of ways. And unless we get back to the primary expression, which I know we haven't talked about primary expressions and mediums in a while, we're not going to solve the problem until we hit the, the things where the root is. The basic fact is this. Morality cannot be forced on people from the top down. Now, you can take away people's freedom from the top down, but that's a whole other thing now. But you can't force morality on them. So why do so many people take this approach of top-down morality? Well, perhaps it's because it's not easy to teach people morality because you have to actually trust people and you have to actually invest in people and it takes a long time. But you can take away people's freedoms and you can go out and you can scream and you can vote for public policies or people who will give you the policy that you want. I guess we don't necessarily do a lot of personal voting in our, our society, but we, we have this idea that macro top-down solutions are the way to go. And there are a lot of ideological movements, many of which are more familiar with anecdotes in our society. There are a lot of people who really are informed with emotions and how people feel. There's not a lot of people who have a comprehensive and holistic understanding of history. And the unfortunate reality is a lot of these ideologies, which are uninformed of history, they're emotional, they're not rooted in critical thinking, reason, or even church history. These places, these ideologies, they have come to the church. They have come to root and hijack the church. They have come to hijack Christianity, and this is a problem. Of course, I myself, I don't claim to know anything. I don't claim to, to know everything at all. I'm just here to present some material and have conversation with you. You out there in the audience, feel free to, to engage in critical thinking with me. I want to make a comparison with some of the people of today and some of the saints of old, particularly one saint, and that saint is Angela Marici. In the past, we talked about Angela Marici in one of our Hot Knot or Sanctified segments on Tools for Liberty, but today I want to talk about Angela Marici and compare her to people of today. So Angela Marici, she was a Christian saint who founded what was called the Secular Institution. Now that was what it was called at the time, although it's more accurately and later understood to be a, a religious order of women. She was an orphan at a young age, and as a young woman, she hated the ignorance of poor and unfortunate children. She was also disturbed by the thought of the decaying family life. So what did she do? She built orphanages in schools to educate children. She taught girls from a young age how to be successful leaders in their communities by building nuclear families. She taught them the things they needed to be disciplined in, in morality. She taught them the things they needed to be to be Christian wives and mothers and leaders in their community. And that's so important for us to recognize. So we have some pictures of Angela Marici. And those of you listening to the podcast, it's all right if you, you can't find pictures of her. You can, you can look some up. And it's so fantastic to see the story of Angela Marici. The history of this, this Christian saint is just absolutely phenomenal. Because her mentality was not to, to reach up for something that would be a top-down approach, no, no macro policies here, but instead it was to build something that was starting at the local level. It was very much a, a ground operation. And she built something fantastic, even though she was, she was one who embraced poverty. She helped mend broken families. It was not a, a life where she went out screaming and protesting against 
whatever was going on in her day. She didn't go out and scream all up and down the walls of the church calling it a patriarchy. Instead, she went out and she worked. She was known for her poverty, but even though she didn't have a lot of resources, she used her conviction to build hope and future for the children in her life. And the word hope and future, those times, those oftentimes can be hollow words, but she actually built real futures for people. And that's phenomenal. So what do people like today? Where are the Angela Marichis in our world? Well, I'm not here to beat up on people. I'm sure there are people out there who have conviction. In fact, I know there are many of you out there who have a, a huge conviction. But our culture is fighting against those of you and those of us who, who have a conviction to do things like Angela Marichi. Our culture is sick, and it wants to put people who scream and protest in the, the limelight instead of people who are out doing productive things. It wants to give more voice to people who, who want to destroy society than to people who want to build it up. They would rather put emotionally screaming people on TV who would attack the nuclear family than do things to help mend it. Angela Marici was very concerned with mending the nuclear family. She didn't want things to, to go awry. She didn't want things to collapse. And again, a lot of times people do have broken families, and there's really two ways you can go about it. You can go over there and you can give them more fit that sort of eases the pain but doesn't fix the problem, or you can sometimes do the nasty work of actually fixing problems. By the way, on this topic of nuclear families, one of the greatest antisocial risk factors for being a live course persistent antisocial offender which, of course, antisocial, meaning something which is against the social norms, not necessarily something which is, means shy. A lot of times people use that word wrong. Um, not having a father in the home is one of the greatest things that could make it likely that you will be a life course antisocial offender. You know what else drastically increases recidivism rates? Not having a father. Not having a loving family with parents that can care and, and raise children is, is a big deal. It, it can hurt things. If you don't have a father in the home, if you don't have a, a nice nuclear family, children are not as well off in life. Angela Marici addressed this by teaching women how to be leaders in the world by building healthy families. Again, that's something that you have to invest in a whole generation ahead of time. We're always one generation away from tyranny or one generation away from poverty, and we need to be preparing our children to be healthy people who can build solid families. And again, families don't always look the same. The dynamics of family life can be quite unique, of course, across all sorts of socioeconomic statuses, but that doesn't mean that they have to be in a state of decay. Building a nice, solid family is the way to build a nice, solid culture. This is real justice, not an ideology qualified by the term social. It's a genuine idea. It's a genuine mentality to go out and be productive like Angela Marici. And her work was objectively fruitful. You don't even have to build a narrative around it to, to make her seem interesting. She was it's just solid. It's solid, grounded, rooted stuff. It was built off being, being a, one of, a teacher of Christian discipline, not one built off of division. It actually built real futures. Anthony? You know, um, to kind of circle back to what you asked earlier, you mentioned, uh, what was it? Not that, where were the Angela Marigis? But, well, in any case, a lot of times today, you people want to take the top-down approach. Yeah. You know, and you were asking why that is. That's what you asked. Why is it that people want to take the top-down approach instead of the bottom-up? And, you know, honestly, I mean, we could empathize with Angela Marici here a little bit and realize that's not something that a lot of people are willing to do quickly. That's actually a seriously big deal. Like, you know, she completely dedicated her life yeah. to making these children's lives better. And, you know, she probably affected 
countless families. You know, oh, countless yeah. generations are probably been beneficially affected by, yeah. you know, her hands. Well, certainly there's a reason she's venerated as a saint. Yeah. It, it's not yeah. just because she was a woman. It wasn't given to her by affirmative action. She has objectively fruitful things. She did some awesome work. She's an inspiration to everyone. Even if you're yeah. not a woman, you can be inspired to live like Angela Marici. But I think this is closely connected and why people would want to take the top-down approach because they're not having to basically to do something like this. You know, this is this is absolutely amazing, and it, it is saintly work. Yeah, and it's... It's the easy road to do the, the top-down approach. It's emotional. You can, you don't have to dedicate your life to it. There's a low cost to it. Exactly. Well, I should say a low short-term cost to it, though a lot of times it's, it's detrimental, but people are disconnected from the long-term effects. And anyways, I, earlier I mentioned the idea of a ideology qualified by the term social, and I don't mean to beat up on people. I actually think there are good-intended people who have been sold the, the package and ideology of social justice. However, they just don't see the pathology of it. And we really need to call out the, the ideology that is social justice. We need to call this. Justice does not need a qualifier. Um, there are some very bad players who are guiding the narrative-based ship of social justice. And its logical conclusion is not justice at all, hence why it needs a qualifier. It's basically an ideology of reconfiguring reality so that it matches a narrative. It's not based on what is just reality. It, at its very root, is about dividing things up based not in reality but based off of the narrative. I'm always very skeptic of, of people who are, who are very good with language, who are very rooted in narrative, who are hyper-obsessed with narrative and identity, because it's a bad thing. It's a bad place to be. Um, it is truly divisive, even though it often yells at everything else for being divisive. Social justice, it is nominalistic in the fact that it believes that if it can call something a thing, then that makes it a thing. They use the word justice, then therefore it must be justice, even though they've kind of slipped in that qualifier to suggest that it's not actually pure justice. It is built off of a lot of heresies, this mentality is, even the most blatant one being Gnosticism, that only certain ideas or certain identities can have certain knowledge and things like that, that there's sort of this Gnostic different ideas and things which are hidden around the world, and you've got you've to get somebody from this group, and only they can have that, and then there's the elect. But anyways, I don't want to spend a lot of time there, because I want to talk about something productive, and that is Angela Marici. Angela Marucci was not hyper-obsessed with narrative or identity or any other such term, which is a distraction and is very self-centered. She was instead concerned with translating the Christian disciplines that she was convicted by into a meaningful reality for the people around her. Again, she was concerned with reality, not narrative. So my challenge for you to this is this today. Be like Angela Marucci. We're always one generation away from tyranny but we could also be one generation away from prosperity. Those of you out there who are in my generation, we're the sort of millennial generation, um, for lack of better term, sometimes that's, that's a, a brain teaser, or you might say a brain torture. But nonetheless, we need to be like Angela Marici. Don't be hyper-obsessed with narrative or, I, or identity. Don't be someone who wants to tear down history. As Protestants, we've largely lost our Christian history and tradition and even things like people say, oh, well, Christianity is sexist. If you learn Christian history, the sexist argument is hard to, to make and it doesn't hold water for very long because that's we, we look at the, the list of saints and people who have been influential in the last 2,000 years. We learn about them. We'll quickly find out that God uses both men and women equally to do marvelous, marvelous things. And it's well recorded. It's not nitpicky. It's not like there are a few token women here or there. Church history is filled with them. They were not screeching protesters with their virtues on a sign, their, their virtues on a comment somewhere in a post, but instead they were saints who transformed the world into a better place. 
And that's the challenge I have for you today. Be someone like Angela Marici. I thank you so much for, for being here with us. Again, Midweek Liberty is put together by Kingdom of the Logos. That's sort of our, our umbrella brand. I'm J. Dylan Proctor. Anthony Alegria, he's the one who runs all the audio video. If you would like to help us out, the big thing you can do is share our content. You can find our free podcast to download on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or on CastBox. Myself, I really like CastBox. Or you can watch the, the videos on YouTube if you do a search for Kingdom of the Logos. And of course, you can also find us on Facebook. Again, thank you so much for spending time with us. And on that note, have a blessed day.